What is motivation and where does it come from? Motivation has always felt like something that if for some reason you were lacking it, there was really nothing you could do. And this is evidenced by the sheer number of motivational videos and books and podcasts and music that exists out there, all created by people trying to solve this problem of how to get motivated when you're just not. But the field of motivation science has started to find that motivation actually is something we can control. That not only is it something that is not as confusing and intangible as it once seemed, but that it could actually be turned on, that it could be controlled, that if the right circumstances were put together, one could engineer motivation in their lives. This is what we're going to be discussing today with my guest, Dr. Eilat Fishbach. She is the author of the book, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. And she's also the Jeffrey Breckenridge Keller Professor of Behavioral Science and Marketing at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Islet, so be sure to check out part two as well once you're done with this one. But in the meantime, get excited because this is Tiny Leaps. Big change. Motivation is an interesting part of getting things done. If we have it, it allows us to take massive action, to get more done than we feel is even possible, and to push harder than we've ever pushed before. And then, in an instant, we can lose it and be incapable of doing the smallest tasks. And even more strange, if we lose our motivation it starts to feel like we're incapable of accomplishing the smallest tasks. What is this thing? And why does it have so much control over our lives? Why is motivation something that we struggle with in the first place? And where does it even come from? And potentially, most important, can we control it? Today's guest is Dr. Eilat Fishbach. She's the author of the book, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. And I wanted to first understand, before we dive into the real conversation, I wanted to first understand how this book came about and why she chose now as the moment to write it. So you're absolutely right that I am not that typical person to write a popular book. I have write academic papers for a living and I spend many years writing academic papers. I spend almost 20 years studying motivation and just running studies and publishing them. And then at one point, 
I felt like I'm in a really messy room. Like there were all these ideas and all these interventions and everything that that either I knew or I thought I knew because I read about it like 10 years ago, but I'm not really sure whether it's still true. And I, I just decided to um, put things in order. Right? And so I identified four buckets of behavioral interventions that motivation scientists use. And I was starting to put things in the, uh, the bucket and and writing about them. And, um, and then there was a book. Okay. I mean, that's a pretty natural way to get there. Do you consider yourself, like, when you're introducing yourself at conferences, do you, are you a motivational scientist? Or is there a different field that you're focused on? Or kind of general? Like, how do you describe what your work is in? I am a motivation scientist, and I present myself as a motivation scientist. But you are right to ask this question, because when I started my work, there was no such thing as motivation science. And so I I was a social psychologist. Uh, Then I joined a group of behavioral scientists uh, in the business school here uh, in Chicago. And so I was a behavioral uh, scientist. But over the years, there were more and more of us, people who are specifically Mm. studying motivation. And uh, right now, I feel pretty comfortable saying we are motivation scientists. Okay, so you're a motivation scientist before it was cool to, to be that, basically. Uh, why why were you attracted, and I asked the same question of every academic that I have the pleasure of having on, why motivation, why that specific thing out of all of the, the, the very vast realm of behavioral science? Uh, frankly, I, it was so long ago that However, I construct my memories. I always suspect that uh, maybe this is a story that I'm telling myself. Uh, But I I was doing a PhD and a PhD is this thing where you you get up in the morning and you are supposed to come up with ideas and, you know, either run experiments or write about these ideas. Uh, It's the least structure thing that exists or at least I I don't know of jobs that are less structured than getting a PhD and so I just spend a lot of time thinking about how do you motivate yourself how do you do this how do you navigate the 10 other things that you want to do uh, uh, throughout the day Uh, PhD students often tell me and I remember feeling in the same way that they are very busy and and you wonder like what is, what does it mean that you are very busy like what are you supposed to do just sit in the library and think like how, how is that busy and nevertheless there are all like these things that you want to do and like your mind is is, is wandering and you're juggling things and it's just uh, it's really hard to stay motivated so I to uh, study motivation. And you're right that it wasn't cool. Like, people were not doing that. It's really hard to stay motivated. This is probably the most true statement that's ever been said on this show. And the research backs it up, too. According to many studies, the vast majority of people fail at their New Year's resolutions or their goals within the first two to four weeks after setting them. Why? Well, they just lost motivation. But I've always had an issue with the idea of motivation. I've always felt like it's something you can't really control and therefore 
is not really worth focusing on. Instead, you should focus on the environment you're in and the context you're in and using that to reinforce the behavior in lieu of motivation. But I wanted to present this idea of motivation being something we can't really control to Islet Fishbach to hear what she had to say. Well, you're right that it's tricky and it's tricky because it's unclear who is trying to motivate whom. What does it mean to motivate yourself? If you want to do something, why don't you just do it? Like that, you know, like no one is pointing a gun to your head. If you want to get up in the morning, get up in the morning. You want to stay in bed, stay in bed. Like who is really struggling with whom? And it's a philosophical debate. And, and in this sense, I, I think that it is a, a confusing. Uh, but when you study motivation, and particularly if you're a social scientist, then you realize that the way to change behavior is by changing the situation in which the behavior occurs or the way people think about this motivation. And it makes a lot of sense that we can change others' behavior uh, uh, by changing their situation. Okay, I, I want my son to get up in the morning. I know I open the curtain so there is light in the room and he cannot sleep. I want myself to get up in the morning. I put an alarm clock so it goes off. There is loud noise and I have to get up. It, it's a very simple example, but I'm doing exactly the same thing when I try to motivate someone else to go to school and motivate myself to get up. So it, it's not it's not impossible. There are uh, specific ways of doing it. There, there are frameworks that are uh, helpful and yet it's philosophically confusing. And you're right that there is a lot of uh, untested ideas that, mm. uh, that Would people Would you say present. that there's a, um, or rather, what is the difference in your mind between, uh, and I'm going to put a label on this, but if there is an actual label, please let me know what it is. Um, but external factors motivating you. So the example you just gave of opening up your son's curtains so that the the light's coming in and he can't sleep uh, versus the internal motivation of him choosing to set the alarm clock so that he wakes up. Like what is what is the difference between those two and how do you affect one versus the other? There are more similarities than differences. Basically, we are using kind of the same strategies where we are trying to influence other people and when we are trying to influence ourselves. Saying that, there are things that are more intuitive for us to use on ourselves. So take something like intrinsic motivation. We are actually not very much aware that others care about intrinsic motivation as much as we do when we ask people how much other people uh, care about uh, feeling good at the workplace, uh, working with someone that uh, they like or on a task that is interesting for them. Well, they, they realize that it's important for other people, but they say that it's much more important for them. And so if you think that you care about interest uh, more than others, then when you motivate others, you will explain to them why that's important for them to do and not why it will be fun and interesting. Uh, It's also the case that there are things that are easier to uh, apply on others. Giving others uh, incentives, rewards, is very intuitive when we try to change someone else's behavior. We often use rewards when we try to influence our own behavior 
rewards are not usually the first thing that we will uh, go to, but we still use it. So what I'm saying is that I, I can look and say like this strategy is more likely to be applied to others. This is more to myself, but eventually I'm using strategies for the same book. So in your book, you cover a lot of this. Uh, first of all, the book is called Get It Done. Uh, how how do you describe it to people? Uh, it's a book about uh, my understanding of motivation science. It starts with the assumption that you change behavior by changing the, the situation or the way people think about the situation. And then it puts every intervention that uh, I could think of into uh, four buckets. How you set a goal, how do you monitor your progress, how do you juggle everything else that you want to achieve, and how do you leverage social support? And one thing that you do um, at the end of each chapter that I really enjoyed, uh, you sort of like present these key understandings and findings from the, the chapter that you just went through. So the chapter might cover three or four different topics and you might have a few stories and experiments and, and research and so on and so forth. But then at the end, you sort of wrap it up with here's how you can think about this based on what we just learned. Um, so I, I, I really love that. But one thing, so chapter two is titled put a number on it. Uh, it's all about setting targets for specific uh, outcomes or behaviors that you're trying to change. And you talk about the malicious goal target. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yes, but I would say that uh, it, it's not quite a summary, it's more uh, questions. Okay, So I <laughs> quite purposely uh, put the summary into questions because I have research showing that when people answer these questions for themselves, when you give advice to yourself, you are more motivated than when you hear what I have to say. And so that, that's the end. Uh, back to uh, malicious uh, goal targets. Uh, malicious uh, goal targets, well, goal targets are the numbers that we put in a goal. It's it's how much and how soon, and it is usually effective. That is, we, we really care about these numbers. If we set our goal as, I don't know, walking 10,000 steps a day, we would be disappointed if we uh, uh, walk just uh, 100 steps below that target. We'll find ourselves uh, uh, walking around the house just to hit that number. We really care about these numbers. But we often forget that these numbers are just meant to motivate us. Like they are not meaningful by uh, themselves. And, and so we often use numbers that don't quite get the goal, okay? like they don't quite measure the thing that we care for. I already uh, mentioned my uh, lovely uh, son. So I just caught him the other day, like waving his, his hand, trying to get uh, steps on his uh, uh, watch. Uh, you know, he's 10 and he's trying to meet the target of uh, however many steps he was planning to uh, to have. And, uh, and that was more important than actually walking these uh, uh, steps. I uh, give the example of uh, uh, Wells Fargo, uh, who set a goal to sell their clients eight financial tools. They had a great name for that goal. It was great, GR8. Uh, so the, the target was very specific. Uh, bank employees were very enthusiastically uh, pursuing uh, that goal, but the only way to get people to have eight financial tools is by selling them tools that they didn't need and often that they didn't know that they got. Uh, and so on the, on the 
name of the target, uh, employees were engaging in unethical and actually illegal uh, behavior. So uh, goal targets can become malicious. This idea legitimately surprised me. The fact that setting goals and focusing on specific targets can sometimes, if done poorly, lead to an incentive to hit the target regardless of how it's done is incredibly interesting and has so many implications for the processes we use to develop our goals, to develop our productivity systems, and in how we spend our time on a day-to-day basis. We need to spend more time questioning what our targets actually are and why. Is getting to the gym three to four times a week actually the goal or is the goal the result of that? And this has always been my issue with goal-setting frameworks like the SMART system, S-M-A-R-T. So I wanted to hear what Islet Fishbach thought about the SMART system and goal-setting frameworks in general and whether or not it was possible to stop them from becoming malicious. We need to have healthy relationship with our goals. Uh, The SMART goals, well, these are... uh, Good principles, they are not the only principles. Uh, Intrinsic motivation, which is probably the best predictor of engagement in any goal, actually didn't make it to uh, that list. And and so uh, the list is very uh, partial. Um, You know, they are principles. They are not always applicable. And I I think that what you are saying, or maybe what you, you meant to say, is that when we become too attached to a goal, we might not ask ourselves whether this is healthy for us, whether this is the, the right thing to do. And we need to do it. And, you know, I start my book with the example of the, the goal to reach uh, the, the summit of Mount Everest. It's a highly motivating goal. It's very specific. It's intrinsically motivating. There are rewards. They're like Everybody will admire you if you make it. it it's a good goal. Uh, but under certain conditions, uh, you need to give up on, on that goal. And when the weather is bad, uh, you need to know where uh, to turn around and, and and tell yourself, I'm not going to make it to the, the summit. And I, I give the story of, of people who did not give up and actually paid with their lives. Then when you ask about specific targets, well, they are often unhealthy. Okay, And so, you know, you, you want to set a target that is good for you. You also want to know and to remind yourself that the target is uh, is not set in stone. I actually encourage people to be optimistic and set a target that they can only achieve 80% of the time or that they have 80% chance of achieving, meaning there's a good chance that you will not meet your target, but it doesn't matter because you you pull through because you have the target. Now, this might be dipping more into uh, the therapy side of things. So that's completely okay if you don't have an answer. But how does one go about decoupling that sort of emotional reaction where uh, you might set a specific goal of uh, saving X amount of money in the next three months 
and you don't quite make it. Maybe you make 50% of the way, maybe you make 70% of the way, but you don't make that final number. Do you have any thoughts on how you can go about still appreciating that you're you're further than you you were before? You made progress regardless of whether or not you actually hit that specific target when you were using the target as a motivator. Yes, this is hard and this is hard because in a way what makes us feel good about our goals is not necessarily reaching the goal is making fast progress. Often there is even a sense of emptiness after you you achieve yeah. something big in your life, right? You, you kind of, okay, well, I'm on the, no, the top of the mountain and now what? Uh, so the, the positive feeling was coming from making progress and you're describing a situation in which my progress is lower than what I was hoping for. I thought that I can... I don't know, save $10,000 this year and turn out I uh, was able to save uh, uh, much uh, uh, less. Uh, the, the strategy that I suggest to people is to look back. And often if you feel that you are falling behind or if you just, you are novice, okay, or you just start on something, you're not really sure if you can do it, you can monitor your progress in terms of looking back at what you have done. You don't need to look ahead at what is still uh, ahead of you, what you still need to do. And now I uh, describe a study in which we talk to students uh, who were trying to get themselves to study for an exam. And one of those exams were not very important, like it wasn't part of their major. They weren't sure whether they have the motivation to study. And when we told them to write down what they did to consider how much they've already studied, how much of the materials they've already covered, they were more motivated to continue studying than when we asked them to look ahead and think about all the materials that they still need to cover and maybe they will not cover everything by the day of the exam. Interesting. So that makes me think of, that's very, that's kind of like focusing on the progress you've made so far kind of ties into the role of something like streaks in a, um, in a habit tracker or, or uh, some kind of like uh, tracker like that where seeing where you started from and how far you've come becomes the the motivator is is that an accurate sort of understanding or am yes. i conflating it, yes and that uh, works very well until the midpoint if the goal has a, a clear midpoint so yeah. you know I, between 0 to 50% looking back would make you feel that your next action has greater impact on, on achieving the goal than uh, looking ahead. And uh, each time you uh, doubt your commitment, you're not sure whether this thing is uh, for you and you hope to convince yourself that this thing is for you, uh, then looking back at what you have done is often uh, the way to go. Also, we motivate others by uh, pointing out the, the amount of work that uh, has been done. Okay, We motivate people to give to charities by pointing out that uh, uh, there is already uh, a lot of that has been contributed either by them or by other people. So what, do you have any insights as to why that is? Why is it that between 0 and 50% that feels really impactful, but then that last stretch, it's maybe not? Oh, uh, there are two reasons, and I don't like it when there are two reasons because it's always easier when there is one reason. But, oh well, we'll make Such life. Is life. Yeah. 
Uh, one reason is that just the, the effect of the next action will appear bigger. So let me give you an example of a loyalty program where you have to make 10 purchases in order to win a reward. So you need to buy 10 cups of coffee to get a, a free coffee. At the beginning, like your your second purchase will double what you have done if you like you look back, okay, so I did one and now I can double it by doing two, okay, at the next one will add a third uh, whereas uh, at the beginning, if you you look at how many are left, well moving from I still need to do nine to I still need to do eight, that doesn't seem like a large impact. Now go all the way, you know, you're almost getting the reward. Uh, your last purchase is either getting your 100% of what is left or that it adds another tenth to what you've already done. Okay, So it's just mm. the psychophysics of this suggests that your action will seem to have more impact when you compare it to what, no, to the beginning, okay, when you are starting and to the end uh, uh, when you are pushing that. Uh, then let's move to uh, the, the psychology that's not psychophysics. Uh, when we look at what we have done, we feel more committed. That is, we feel that we value what we do and that it's more likely that we will be successful. And at the beginning or for novices or, you know, after getting negative feedback, when we are not quite sure about our commitment, we're not quite sure whether we can do something or whether it's worth doing it, then considering our past investment uh, is likely to convince us that, yes, we can. We already did it in the past. And obviously we care because we already did it in the past. That's it for part one of my conversation with Eilat Fishbach. In part two, we're going to dive deeper into the question of commitment and its role in driving motivation. We're also going to look at why looking at our progress and what we've done so far can be so motivating and reinforcing in the beginning, but why as you make progress, it potentially starts to wane. It's going to be a super amazing conversation, so make sure you check it out. If you're listening to this uh, in the future, the episode's already live. Just look for episode 794. It's part two of my conversation with Islet Fishbach. If you're listening to this day of, then come back in two days on Thursday, and you'll have access to part two. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I cannot thank you enough. Be sure to check out Islet's book. I've been reading it myself. I'm pretty much done. And it is a phenomenal, phenomenal read. She does a fantastic job taking the science and making it accessible, making it something that uh, plebs like me can wrap their heads around and make uh, decisions around. So check out the book. There's a link to it in the description of this episode. And until the next episode, thank you so much for being here. I've been Greg Clunas. And remember that mistakes are not final. Failure is a requirement. And all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take every day. Every day.